Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given to us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word. We pray that as we study it, that we would come to an understanding of who you are as you revealed yourself to be. We pray that you would bless our time together and that our devotion to you would be evident in our words and in our thoughts and in our attitudes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Picture me, if you will, a situation where we have a husband who says he loves his wife very much. And yet you see he has pictures where he's photoshopped her with different characteristics. Okay? And he's constantly telling her, I, want, you know, I wish you were more like this, I wish you were a different height, I wish you were a different weight. Even you young single guys know that's a dumb idea, right? Okay. <laughs> but we do that many times when we reject the way that God has revealed himself to us in his word. And we try to fashion him in our own image. I found this quote from A.W. Tozer. It says, We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire God's wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. But before we get into the text, I think it's important for us to define a few of the terms we'll be discussing this morning, as well as looking at a few of the details of Isaiah's life so we can get some context behind the passage we'll be looking at. It's important in any discussion uh, to define your terms so that you know what it means when you say a certain word, what I mean by that. The first term I want us to look at is the word holy. You know, many of us have this understanding of it means something pure or something that is without corruption. And that is certainly the way it is used many times. But the word itself is the idea of being set apart, being separated, being uh, having a discernment. You know, you look at something and you judge whether it's good or bad, you separate it out. There's two aspects of that, and one is the idea of being ceremonially sacred. We see this in the utensils that were used in the worship of God in the temple. Uh, There were the fire pans, the candlesticks, the shovels for removing the ash. Those things were all dedicated to the service of God. They were not used in any other place. They were set apart for ceremonial use. The second aspect of being set apart is that some things are set apart because of their very essence is morally sacred. The idea of being separated due to the behavior or the essence of something. The second term or concept I want us to discuss is the idea of weal and woe pronouncements. This is an old King James term. It basically means blessings and cursings. Uh, The idea of weal being welfare or prosperity. Um, We see examples of this in Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who does not uh, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of a scornful. Uh, That is the form, blessed are those who do this. So someone receives a blessing or someone is in favor if they do this. There's a full list of them in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. Many of us know this as the Beatitudes. You know, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The other side of that, the opposite, is woe. The idea of misery or misfortune. The form of that is similar. It's woe to those who, and then fill in the blank of the bad things they're doing. 
Again, we see examples of this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, pronouncing a curse on those who cannot discern between what is morally right and what is morally wrong. We see a number of examples of this with Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Gospels, but I want to call attention to a couple of them in Luke 11, 42 and 44. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, you give a tenth of mint and cumin and dill. He says, you guys are applying the idea of a tenth of the tithing of the harvest on your little herb boxes in your room, and you're ignoring the more important things that God has called you to do. A curse upon you. Woe to you Pharisees, you love the front seat in the synagogues. You know, they were living in a righteous way, but they were wanting to do it in a way that other people would notice how righteous and how holy they were living. They were doing it for the praise of men. Jesus said, woe to you, a curse on you for trying to act that way. The final uh, concept I want us to define is the idea of repetitive emphasis. In Hebrew, uh, one of the ways to create emphasis is to repeat a word or a phrase. We're going to go quickly through a few examples of that so we can understand sort of what we're talking about when we get into the text where we see the word repeated. The first example is uh, the Song of Solomon. It starts out the Song of Songs. This is the idea of uh, the greatest song that's ever been sung. The song to end all songs is the idea. And this is the construction of a word of the same word. Exodus 26 is a a different type of repetition. This is a repetition of the same word twice. And this is a great example because we see in verses 33 and 34, it talks about the holy place where the temple was, where the priest went in and ministered on a daily basis. And then the holy, holy place, which is even more set apart than that. We'll talk about that when we get into uh, the triple repeated holy in Isaiah 6. There's a different construction in in, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. It's where it uses two different forms of the same verb. So it uses the conjugated form, die, and the infinite form, dying. So it says, when you disobey this command, you will die dying, is the literal translation. Most of it's translated as, you will surely die or you you will definitely die. The final example of the repetitive emphasis is the one Jesus used himself. Uh, Many of you, if you've ever uh, memorized verses in the Old King James, you know, verily, verily, I say unto you. That's the formula he's using, amen, amen. So instead of saying, yes, something is true, like we say at the end of uh, of a a song or at the end of a a particular uh, point that we like, we say, amen, yes, let it be true. Jesus said at the beginning, truly, truly, you know this is true because I'm telling you it's true. And several examples of that are in John chapter 3 where he's speaking to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. There is nothing more true than what I am telling you right now, Nicodemus. You must be born again. So now we sort of have those terms in mind. Let's look at a few details in Isaiah's life um, that we can can glean so we can understand where he's coming from as he comes into Isaiah chapter 6. There's not a lot known about him as a person uh, because there's not a lot of information outside of the book of Isaiah. It mentions him a few times in some of the, the Chronicles. But it does seem he's well-educated. Uh, some of the research I did says that he actually uses more unique words than the entire book of Psalms. So this is definitely a scholarly man, someone who had learned, uh, had an education and knew how to use words because he uses more words than the poetic Psalms do. We also know that he had already been a prophet before uh, chapter 6. We see... Uh, Eight different pronouncements of woe you can see in the first five uh, chapters of the book of Isaiah where he had pronounced a woe, a curse on Judah and Jerusalem because of the behavior that they had done. We also see some fairly scathing rebukes which probably did not make him very popular among the leadership in Judah and Jerusalem at that time. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 10, he literally calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm sure that that did not go over well with the people of his day. 
He complains about them oppressing the poor in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, he talks about the women who were flaunting themselves and how God would curse them with baldness and with sores on their head. So Isaiah was you know, a really popular preacher of his day because he was being very nice and kind and, and, and uh, thoughtful of them. But again, we, we, we have to understand this. He's already a prophet. He's already preaching. God has already given him messages to say. He also served during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That was an unbroken line of kings of succession in the kingdom of Judah. This was a time during the divided kingdom. And as we've seen from Pastor Mark talking about some of the kings of Judah, there were a few of them that were actually pretty good. And very few of them that were actually good the whole entire time. That's going to be important because Uzziah was one of those kings who started out well. He followed God. And yet towards the end of his, his reign, he got arrogant and decided to take some liberties for himself that were not his to take. Because of this, we see that Isaiah um, ministered around 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. So he has about a 50 to 60 year uh, career in prophecy, depending on uh, you know how you count the times. But again, he has a long time that he has prophesied over many kings. And finally, I want to understand, tradition holds that he was martyred by Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. One of the worst kings that uh, Israel had, or that Judah had seen, excuse me, he was uh, martyred by being sawn in two. We see an allusion to this in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the faith hall of fame. And uh, again, the important part of that is to understand that Isaiah was ministering, that he was uh, attending to the word that God had given him. So with all that in mind, let's look into Isaiah chapter 6 and see what it tells us from there. We're going to dive right into the words since we've already read through them. We'll just dive right into the individual uh, phrases and kind of what they mean so we can get an understanding of what God is trying to teach us from his word here. The first phrase in verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died. As I mentioned, he was one of Judah's better kings. He had 52 years of reign. He had economic success. He had military success. Um, you know, the word of God was preached, and he did away with the worship of God, at least in the temple, uh, the worship of other gods, uh, at least in the temple, but the high places were not taken away. So there was still worship of other gods going on, there was still corruption, there were still other things, but the king himself followed God and did what was right. And after 52 years, um, he died. But the last few years of his reign were a disgrace. Because he had gone into the temple to try to offer incense, which was something only the priests were allowed to do, and God cursed him with a skin disease. So he had to be separated from the rest of his family. He lived out the rest of his days in disgrace. So the year that King Uzziah died was a tragic year because this was a long-standing king. Most of the people alive during that time had only known the King Uzziah. But also it was sort of sad because he ended his days without um, following God completely as he could have done. We're also not sure what the people thought about King Jotham, his son. They weren't sure what was going to happen to this new king. What was, was Jotham going to be a good king? Because as we see, having a good father as a king or a good king as a father did not necessarily mean that you were going to be a good king as well. And so there were some of those things going through the people's mind as they were waiting to see what happened now that King Uzziah had died. We see on in verse 1, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. So again, Isaiah sees this vision. We're not sure if it's something that he saw in the spirit where he was captured into this area or something that was just brought to his mind. But it was real enough for him to be able to see these things. I personally think it was something where God appeared to him in a physical sense. Judah's throne, like we said, had been vacated, but the occupant of heaven's throne was still alive and ruling in majesty on high. 
Many of the commentators I looked at thought that this might be a Christophany, meaning an, an experience, a, 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 an expression of the, the pre-incarnate Christ showing himself to Isaiah here. So again, the word Adonai is the word Lord there. That is the idea of the master, the king, the, the one who is in charge of all. The sovereign of, of the universe is sitting on his throne, and Isaiah gets to see him in all his glory. The last part of verse 1 says, His robe filled the temple, the train of his robe in some translations. In ancient times, the size and the material that was used for a, a ruler's robe was an indication of their power and their prestige. Uh, included a picture here uh, that we can see of this robe. This is Queen Elizabeth at her coronation, at least from what I understand from Google, if you trust them. Uh, so this is her, her robe that she had, the robe of state. And this is what she would use when she was going and making royal proclamations or to show you know, the, the full extent of her authority as the queen. This robe, this train, is 18 feet long and took six people to carry it so that it didn't touch the ground. And yet we see in this verse, the train of this king's robe filled the temple. The temple was about 30 feet by 60 feet, depending on the size of the cube you're talking about. Imagine the robe of a king filling the entire place here. Not just covering it and like laying on the floor, but the idea is it's billowing up the sides. This thing cannot, it, it just fills it up and it's pillowing up the sides. I wonder if Solomon's prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8.27 came to Isaiah's mind as he saw this sight. The verse says, But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. Even in the dedication of the temple, Solomon realized that this majestic temple of gold and and ivory and, and all of the different types of precious stones that were in there was pale in comparison to the glory that God deserved. The train of his robe filled the entire temple. But he's not alone on that throne. It says in verse 2 that next to him, the seraphim were standing above him. Uh, The idea is that they're all around him. This is not the idea of a bodyguard, that they're protecting God from people that might come and approach him. This is an honor guard. They are showing that he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory that could be offered. They are standing at attention. They are around him. And what's interesting is each one had six wings. God created everything with a purpose. And he has created everything suited to the purpose for which he created it. There's a reason these angels have six wings. It says here that the first one, the two of them, they cover their face as they're standing in the presence of God. These are the holy, burning, light-emitting angels that sit in the presence of holy God, and yet they cover their faces when they see him out of reverence for his holiness. The next sentence says, two, they cover their feet. So feet in, in Scripture is the idea of, of being a creature, creatureliness, uh, of, of clay, being brittle, being of, of humble means. So as they are in the presence of God, they cover their own faces because they are not worthy to look upon him. And they cover their own feet because God should not have to look at their humble means. They're showing reverence to God in all that they do. The final two set of wings they actually use to fly. The idea is that they're just hovering around in this huge area around the throne of God as they're making their proclamations, which we'll see in just a second. They seem to be flying around proclaiming the holiness of God in a constant chorus. 
as we see in the the next verse. They called out one to another. Now, this could be the idea of each side there, you know, they've got two different sides they're seeing like around. This side says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, his glory fills the earth, and then the other side repeats it and they go back and forth. It could be that each one is calling in turn out to a different angel and they have partners in worship that they're calling and then the other one calls back and then this one and that one. Whichever it is, there is an orchestration there. There is a purpose. There is is a reason why they are calling out to each other like this. This is an organized worship of God Almighty on his throne. And what they called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. We spoke about repetition before and the idea of holy meaning set apart. In Exodus 26, when they talk about the holy place, that was the area of the temple where only the priests, those who were descendants of Levi, who had been consecrated for service, who met the requirements, could go in and minister on a daily basis. The holy, holy place, there was one man on the entire planet who was allowed to go into that place. That was the high priest himself. And only if he had all of the appropriate garments, only if he had done all of the ceremonial cleanings and ritual rituals to be able to go into there. And one day a year was he allowed to go in there, the Day of Atonement. So the holy, holy place was set apart to the point there was one person on earth who could be in that place, in God's presence, one day out of the year. Imagine a being who is exponentially more set apart than even that place. He is literally outside of space and time and matter because he created all of those things with his speech. The difference between us and God is one of quality, not of quantity. As I mentioned in the A.W. Tozer quote, it's not that he is merely more loving than a human could be. He is the standard the embodiment, the source of love. He is not merely more righteous than a human can be. He is the standard of righteousness itself. Righteousness does not exist apart from God. He is not the realized or ultimate ideals and virtues of humanity. The reason those ideals exist in the first place is because of who God is and the fact that he created us in his image. He is not like us at all. In some minuscule way, we are slightly like him. And even that is diminished because of the corruption of sin. Psalm 50 verse 21 is in a section where God is talking about all of these sins that Judah has committed. And they are presuming upon his grace because God has not obliterated them from the planet. And his response in verse 21 says, You have done these things and I kept silence. You thought I was like you. The mistake they made was that assuming that if God had not done all of this punishment, that he was never going to do it. Because, you know, we wouldn't have let this go on as long as God has, so obviously God doesn't care if we do these things. God says, no, that was your mistake. You you, you assumed that I was anything like you at all. God is so far above all of creation that any time we try to compare him to anything that we see or experience, we fall ridiculously short. Isaiah 40, verse 25 says, Who will you compare me to? Or who is my equal? That is why God forbade the use of idols in his worship. 
When Aaron made the golden calf, and when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, made the golden calves at Dan and Bethel, they were not making idols to foreign gods. They were making a statue in order to, to worship Yahweh. But they failed miserably in that purpose, because nothing in all of creation can compare to God, capture his essence, or be an adequate representation of his power and his glory. In Exodus 3, 13 through 14, when Moses is asking God, what, how shall I present you to the people, these people that I go to? What, what is your name? How am I supposed to call you when I present you to them? God did not say, well, I'm kind of like this other God that you know. I'm similar to this guy, but, you know, better. He said, I am that I am. I am sufficient in myself. I exist only for myself. There is nothing without me that, cannot, that can compare. I am who I am. We see in verse 4, we start seeing the implications of what happens when God's holiness is proclaimed. Verse 4 says, The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voice. Just the proclamation of God's holiness caused the temple itself to start shaking. Again, I wonder if Isaiah thought about the stories of, of Moses being on Mount Sinai when God was giving the law to Moses and the earth trembled. And the people were so afraid, they said, Moses, no, please go up there. We don't want to die. Please go up and speak to God on our behalf. Isaiah is seeing the foundations of the temple itself shaken because of God's holiness being proclaimed. The last half of the verse says that the temple was filled with smoke. There's any number of different uh, commentators that talk about what that means. But all of them agreed that the idea, the significance of the smoke at least in part, was the idea of the presence of God himself. That's why I believe that this is a real presence of of Christ, showing himself on his throne before he was incarnated to represent to Isaiah his holiness and his majesty. The smoke filled the entire area there. So now his train is filling filling up and going up the sides. It's engulfing and billowing out. The, The smoke is covering all that he can see. Isaiah apparently got the message. We see in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. We can speculate as to why, but the main point is that upon seeing the Holy One of Israel high and lifted up, he immediately recognized his own sinfulness. It shattered his mind. He's a ruined mess as he is forced to confront That he, the prophet Isaiah, is just as deserving of punishment because he is just as sinful as anyone on whom he has pronounced the woes that God has given him. There's an air of flippancy in some of popular Christianity today about how we talk to God, how we're going to address him. I've heard people talking about high-fiving Jesus when they get to heaven Or people talking about, I've got a few questions for God when I get there. I can't understand this. This kind of idea borders on blasphemy, in my opinion. Scripture seems to indicate that we will be doing well if we simply keep from falling on our faces and mumbling incoherently when we see the presence of Almighty God in all His glory. 
I want us to look at a couple of instances where Jesus showed a similar portion of that. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. Now, this is not the physical manifestation of Jesus' glory. That's in the transfiguration. But this is just understanding that Jesus was different. Something about his essence, because he looked the same as any other Jewish man in the first century. There was nothing significant about his appearance that would mark him as being unique. Scripture talks about that. But there was something about the way he acted, something about the power that he exhibited, the authority that he had that made people take notice. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, we see the story when Jesus is on the water with his disciples. They've gone across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus goes down, takes a cushion, and goes and lays in the bottom of the boat, and he falls asleep. Everything's fine. He knows what's going on. Everything's going according to plan. But in the middle of crossing, this huge windstorm comes up, and the waves are breaking over the front of the boat. I mean, these these are huge swells. They're crashing on top of the boat. They're knocking things down. I don't know if you've ever been in a windstorm like that. I remember being in a small boat out on a lake, and a windstorm came up. And I remember the wave coming over the front of the boat and crashing down. We weren't sure if we were going to get back in there. Now, that's not the open sea. We were pretty close to land. But I remember being a little scared of that happening. These are experienced fishermen, people who have been on the sea before. And they're afraid of what's going on because they can't make any headway. This is, you know, the power and, and fury of nature being unleashed upon their boat. They go down into the hold. Say, Jesus, you know, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? Wake up and do something. So Jesus does. Verse 39 says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. They went from waves crashing over and being fearful for their lives to calm, glassy sea. And they all cheered for Jesus and were all happy to be saved, right? That's not what it says in verse 41. They were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They realized he was not like them at all. His essence was so great, he could command with a word nature itself, and it obeyed him. They were terrified. Our example doesn't end there, though. Go on to chapter 5. They get to where they're going. They're in the region of the Gerizines. And you all know the story. Legion, the demon horde that is inside this man. This guy's running around in the graveyard. He's naked. He's cutting himself with stones. He's breaking off any time they try to shackle him. He cannot be contained. And we see a herd of pigs into which Jesus forces the demons to inhabit. And they run off squealing into their deaths in the water. The men who were tending the pigs didn't like that. And so they went back to town to try to get people going. And as they come back... We pick up the scene in verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. 
That's the same word that's used of the disciples. They were terrified. This word is the idea of fleeing in terror, causing someone to just leave immediately. What did they do to Jesus? They said, get out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Because they recognized that he was not like them at all. They saw the demon-possessed man. They had known what had gone on. They knew about the crazy guy running around out in in the cemetery. But this was something that had power over that. And they were terrified. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul says, Why would the disciples invent a God whose holiness is more terrifying than the forces of nature that provoke them to create a God in the first place? That's why I believe we can have faith in his word, because no human being would ever create a God like is revealed in Scripture. Only a God who is what he says he is would reveal himself like this in Scripture. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah curses himself. Woe is me. My mind is shattered. I can't even process all of this going on in front of me. I, I, I don't know what, you know, the idea is just this guttural scream of, I, I can't even process. I, I don't know what to say. His first coherent thought, I have a filthy mouth. I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Nothing has been said to Isaiah. The mere presence of God Almighty shown in all of his holiness and glory and majesty immediately makes him realize, I'm a sinful man. I have a filthy mouth. Again, I don't know if he thought... I almost said something when I was surprised and saw this. What about those things I thought yesterday? What about the things I said yesterday? Man, we are not anywhere close to being what God wants us to be. He's been pronouncing woe on all these people, and yet Romans 3.10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. Isaiah had to learn this lesson the hard way by experiencing God himself, showing himself in all his glory. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Look with me in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to him. One of the the seraphs flew down to Isaiah. He apparently had noticed what Isaiah was doing, and he had come down to him. But he didn't come empty-handed. He had a coal and a pair of tongs from the altar. That's the altar of incense that was sitting in there, most likely, that was used to prepare the rituals that were needed to go into the holy place, the holy, holy place. So he has a coal from the altar. The coals, the altar, the fire, those things are the idea of cleansing. Either cleansing in the form of of redemption or cleansing in the form of punishment. Cleansing something completely away. So he takes this coal, goes down to Isaiah, and we see in verse 7, He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips... Your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Again, we see this, that fire is the picture of cleansing. Isaiah had confessed his sin and God had given him a way of atonement to pay for that sin. This shows the love and the grace of God. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah had cursed himself, but God was going to give him a purpose. 
This should be our response anytime we study God's word and discover who he is and what his character is like. In verse 8, a new voice enters the scene. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? The Lord is now asking for volunteers. I think it's worth noting that the Lord does not speak to Isaiah until after the issue of sin has been dealt with. He has confessed. He has been atoned for. And now he is fit for service. Sin always separates us from God. It is not that God has abandoned us when he is not near. It is because we have abandoned him and rebelled and run away. We need to make sure that we understand that. That our sin will separate us from God. Last half of verse 8, we see Isaiah's response. Here am I. Send me. He says, send me. I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll do what you want me to do. Romans 12.1 says that that service is the only reasonable response to the salvation of God and to his revealed character. That's the only right way. Isaiah recognizes immediately, as soon as God says to volunteers, I'm here, I'll go. Now, if you read on down, God's calling him to a fruitless ministry. He says, you're going to tell people what to do and they're not going to listen. For 50, 60 years, you're going to proclaim the message that I give you and nobody's going to listen. And yet, Isaiah is willing to go. Because he recognized God's holiness and his own sinfulness. We need to deal with our own sinfulness as we contemplate this passage. Ezekiel 18.20 says the person who sins is the one who will die. This shows that we are individually responsible for our own sin, for our own actions. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where we get the word for sin, the falling short, the missing the mark. But I think sometimes we have the wrong idea of what that means. We see a picture like this where we see a target and we're like, oh, we missed the mark. Almost had it. In fact, many of the pictures I was looking at regarding Romans 3.23 showed, you know, almost there, not quite getting the mark. I saw one where it was a guy falling down on the track and his hand was touching the words finished, but he hadn't quite gotten to the line yet. That is not a biblical picture of sin at all. It's more like this next picture we see here. Our arrow is clear up by the front, just beyond where we're shooting, and the target's way off in the distance. We can barely see it. We're trying to shoot at the Pacific Ocean from the middle of America, and we, there, there's no chance of us hitting it. I don't care how good a bow you have, how great an archer you are. You're not going to shoot an arrow to the Pacific Ocean from this place. And it doesn't matter if you can shoot farther than I can. Or how much closer you get. We are so far off of the target, we have missed it entirely. Sin is a big deal. It's not an almost there, not quite made it. We are completely falling short of the glory of God. Praise God that it doesn't end in 3.23, though. Romans 6.23 provides the solution for that. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
the most amazing part of the gospel is not that God will send unrepentant sinners to hell. The most amazing part of the gospel is that any of us have a chance of getting in at all. People object to hell as immoral because they do not believe in the sinfulness of humanity or they do not understand the severity of sin and what an affront it is to a holy, righteous God. Pastor Paul Washer said, The greatest act of faith is for me to see myself as I am in the mirror of God's word and to still believe that God loves me as he says he does. Because we truly understand God's holiness. We cannot imagine someone who would be willing to allow us in his presence. There's four words of application I want us to take from Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Holiness, sinfulness, forgiveness, and willingness. The first word, holiness. We need to recognize and respect the utter holiness of God. He is not simply holy or doubly holy. He is holy beyond any concept that we could think of. Second application word is sinfulness. We need to recognize and reflect on our own sinfulness, as Isaiah did. Our sin is obvious. By nature and by practice, we are sinners. God is too pure to behold evil, and so we are without hope and without God in this world. That's where the third word comes in, forgiveness. We need to recognize and respond to the forgiveness that God offers on his terms, on the way that he has called us to. This is the good news. That while God is utterly holy, he is still merciful. And he has provided a way to satisfy his wrath, which is just, by sending his son to die in our place and take our penalty. The final word is willingness. We need to realize the only proper response to the truths that we have seen above is a willingness to serve God. If we understand even a fraction of the true nature of God's holiness and the depths of our own sinfulness, we cannot help but desire to serve the one who offered forgiveness when we did not deserve it and could never earn it. We cannot understand the immensity of God's mercy and grace unless we understand his utter holiness and our own depravity. Revelation 5.13 shows another glimpse into the throne room of God. It says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We recognize your holiness. We've seen it from this passage and other places where you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have not kept us in the dark where we did not understand who you were, but you have revealed yourself through your word so that we can understand and know who you are. We also recognize in understanding and knowing you, we've had to face our own sinfulness. What if any of us were to stand before you? None of us would have 
any basis on which to claim righteousness before you because you are holy, holy, holy. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we would live them out in our lives and that as we go from this place, that you would give us hearts willing to serve you in whatever ministries you call us to do and whatever service you've called us to do. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.